In the world of recruiting, some people have seen it all. They built recruiting teams from the ground up, hired hundreds of people in the best companies in the world, developed their expertise year after year. I'm Robin Choi, and I'm on a mission to collect their learnings. These are their stories. Hi, everybody. I'm today with Jose Guardado, and we're going to be talking about closing. So, Jose, you were on my podcast about a year and a half ago. That was the episode number 25, where we discussed your closing techniques, including one that you shared in a presentation to Y Combinator companies about how to increase the closing rate up to 92%. That was your experience back then. So the goal today is to review those techniques, to go back to the guide that you wrote initially and see what's still relevant today. Uh, what's your advice to people who want to increase their closing rates? And yeah, that's what we're going to cover. So basically a, a closing masterclass of source. Awesome. Well, we'll try to live up to that uh, this time. And thank you for having me again here, Robin. Uh, it's a pleasure. Always love talking hiring and speaking with you about uh, any of these topics. So I uh, look forward to getting back into it and exploring further. Cool. Can you start maybe by giving a quick introduction about yourself, your background, and what you've been doing recently? Because since our yeah. first episode, things changed. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been in, a, in hiring for close to 20 years now. I'd say maybe 17, 18 years and always in the Bay Area, always in and around technology and with a heavy favor for startups. And so it started off as an agency recruiter, spent time in corporations at Google and Cisco, uh, did startups, was one for three in startups. Then the one is where I met my co-founder for my company. But after that, I, I did almost five years as a talent partner, three at A16Z, one and a half at, at YC. And... Um, just a lot of helping founders with hiring questions, a lot of seeing a macro perspective on the, the market, and a lot of working with the best search firms in the market to, to deliver hires. And so that all kind of inspired me to take my experience on the road. And uh, in 2019, founded Build Talent with my co-founder, Brian Bocchino. And for about three and a half years, we ran Build Talent and we closed 40 plus engineering and product management executive searches for founders and uh, working with top VCs. And then in May of this year, we announced the sale of Build Talent to Riviera Partners. So Brian and I have been with Riviera since then. And uh, today I'm a partner at Riviera, kind of continuing the mission of working with great founders to hire engineering and product leaders and uh, continuing the, the, the mission of, of driving high impact executive search. And it's been great so far, really enjoyed coming into a mature organization that's built a lot of muscle around delivering search. And so, yeah, it's been wonderful and, and looking forward to what the future holds. All right. So uh, in-house agencies, working with the VC as well. So you've seen all different sides. Why is it so important to work on the closing rates? Why should people care at all? Because we, they could also consider that they cannot close everyone. So if they don't close someone, well, too bad. We'll just move on to the next person. Why is it important to focus on the closing rate? Yeah, there are many reasons, but I think the main reason is that so much work goes into getting that candidate to that stage. If you think about from the very beginning of creating awareness of your your company or your brand, whether that's through a recruiting message, whether that's through some other channel, then locating the qualified candidate and then getting that candidate to be interested, interviewing them, getting them through your evaluation, continuing the conversation with them only to at the last minute lose that candidate, that can be really frustrating. It's obviously a huge waste of time. It can be detrimental to team morale if the team sees the company continually missing out on top candidates. 
And obviously we recruit and we interview people in order to hire them. And so if you're not able to hire them, you are not fulfilling the ultimate objective of, of that effort. Mm-hmm. And for agencies, it's even more the case because if you can increase your closing rate and you increase your revenue right off the bat, and that's an easiest, one of the easiest thing to do to increase the revenue. That's, that's correct. And especially for agencies in the contingency or contained practice areas where they are incentivized for making the hire, you know, no hire, no incentive. And so, you know, driving pipeline is important, but finalizing it and then making sure that there's an offer acceptance is, is really the culmination. And again, the important action of, of that effort. Yeah. All right. What's the TLDR for people who just want to listen to the first five minutes of our conversation? What's the um, like top two, three advice that you'll give to someone who wants to increase their closing rate? Yeah. Well, I would say that not all rules apply to all candidates. That That's something I've certainly learned in, in my years. Uh, I think there are certain things that are universal, like people, you know, all want to be impactful. They all want to be compensated fairly. They all want to work with smart people. They all want to be proud of the work that they do. And so if you take those as the the constants, you know, there are things that are variables such as where in life are you? You know, are you single with no kids? Uh, do you have two grown up kids? Do you have, you know, a kid on the way? Uh, you know, do you want to live internationally? You know, do you have other pursuits in life that you want to have time for? All of these variables will determine you know, what is the right closing formula or combination for any given person. But, you know, I think that what we're going to talk about today are like the things that you can control and trying to reduce variability in how you operate your process so that the only variables that you have to deal with are, are on the candidate side and, and hopefully you can reduce some of those as well. So what you mean is sometimes the person is just not a good fit and we shouldn't try and close them if the role is not aligned with their priorities and maybe the role of a recruiter And the person hiring is not necessarily always trying to increase the closing rate, but rather spending time with people that are likely to close at the end and maybe like eliminate those people that are not likely to close early in the process because they wouldn't be a good fit. Would that be a learning yeah, that, That's certainly fair. And I think that, you know, going out and trying to close every single candidate, that's like trying to go out and marry every single person you date. It's not feasible and it's not really your objective. And, and so... The objective is to marry the right person, is to close the right person. And, you know, as we talked about in the first conversation, hopefully you're doing a lot of discovery throughout the process with the candidate to understand what's really important for them, how they're making their decision, and, and, and whether your opportunity aligns with what they're looking for. Because the downside of closing somebody who is wrong for the role is that they take the role and then potentially leave, you know, within a few months' time, leaving a, a hole in your executive team, leaving lots of questions on the minds of the, the staff. And obviously leaving you in the position of having to restart the search. And so, um, yeah, try to avoid that when possible. All right. So we talk about closing and that's also vocabulary that's inspired from sales. And the recruiting process, I often say, and that's something you say as well, that a recruiting process actually is actually a sales process, very similar to a sales process with different stages and conversion rates and pass-through rates at every stage. So how do we think around this? And yeah, what does closing rate has to do with this? Yeah. You know, I think coming into Riviera has afforded me a great perspective on how tracking gets done. And I think that's one thing the company has done well for its entire history is, is building systems and robust tracking mechanisms. And, and so we think of the leads process, the sales process, very much as a step-by-step -step sales engagement process. And we track opportunities in Salesforce. We look at the conversion rates between stages. We do requirements gathering, we do discovery in the beginning to make sure that the lead is, is actually a qualified lead. 
And then, you know, once we get into negotiation and, and ultimately closing those deals, you know, we strive for a hundred percent close rate, you know, obviously in a sales funnel, as opposed to a recruiting funnel, you do want a hundred percent conversion, mm-hmm. you know, for any prospect to become a, a potential customer. But, you know, I think in recruiting, it's obviously different because you're, you're dealing with people, not necessarily a, a revenue number, but, you know, going back to the, the question of, you know, how these processes are similar and, and how we, we can think about them closing for a customer is the difference between you winning revenue for your business or your competitor getting that. And so it is very binary. And that's a similarity that you'll find in, in recruiting people as well. And, you know, I think what works in the closing process in a sale is a little bit different than what works in a closing process in recruiting. And that I think that the sale is the beginning of a potential relationship with somebody. And so you really want to hit that with all the focus and intensity and the sort of care that you can and getting it converted, showing the urgency, showing the desire to win the business. Whereas I think in recruiting, you can go overboard, you know, with the the recruiter coming in too hot, trying to get a candidate to accept an offer that, that may or may not be right for them. And so I guess I'll see similarities in that if you have done good discovery and whether it's a sales or recruiting process, by the time you get to an end, you should know whether that prospect or whether that candidate is closable. And yes, you do strive for, you know, to get any offer that you make to be closed, but you want to make sure that it's the right one. And especially when you're dealing with people, you need to know it's the right one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's the main difference between sales and recruiting is recruiting, you'll just hire one person, not every body that you see in an interview most of the time sells you you can get to sell to all your prospects and that's the that's the goal what you said last time and uh, i'm pretty sure that's still true today is that closing start from the first interaction that's one of the main advice to people who want to improve their closing rate is to really think about closing from the first interaction and even if you're not going to close so that's the difference again with uh, sales is even if you're not going to close those 30 candidates that you're interviewing, you want to think of them as like closable, right? And people that you'll want to close at some point. So can you tell us a bit more about this and how to stop thinking about closing the person from the very early conversations without being too overwhelming or too intrusive, obviously? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things that you can do is signpost and give signals that are indicators of what you want. For instance, if you are a mission-driven company and you are not looking for people who are after the next big payday, maybe you put that right in your job content and your marketing, talking about what you're looking for and what is not a good fit at your company. And hopefully, you know, that will weed out some element of candidates in your pipeline already. But I think you have to reinforce that throughout the process and go back to these either values or principles that you have and make sure that there's alignment. And you can be as explicit as asking someone you know, the here are core values. Uh, give me an example of how you have demonstrated these values in your work life, or, you know, do these align with how you see the world and you, what you think is important? And so that's number one is like just showing who you are to get the, the candidate to opt in or out. I think number two is doing the discovery process and figuring out what is important to that candidate. And it's not as, as simple as just asking, hey, how are you thinking about your next opportunity? How are you going to make your decision? But you know, really trying to understand where they are from a career perspective. Is this their first management role? Is this them taking a step down? Is it a risk for the company to hire someone in this role? Or is the candidate well in reach of the company and their brand, et cetera? All of these are present different scenarios on what is going to be the the right message to give to that candidate. And hopefully, if you've gotten to know them through the process, you have an idea of what those are. Third, I think, is understanding your risks. 
And so part of that is like, yeah, or this is this person, hey, cultural mismatch or a profile mismatch. You you want to understand those things, but other risks could be competing offers. It could be counter offers. I mean, we just lost a candidate to a counter offer mm -hmm. uh, we didn't see coming at all because there was such a strong sort of sentiment that the candidate had been ready to move on for the entire search that we didn't really see their existing company being competitive in a, in a counter offer scenario. But that's a risk, you know, competing offers are a risk. The candidate withdrawing because they get cold feet or because their spouse gets cold feet, you know, that's a risk. And so, you know, understanding what those potential risks are and trying to avoid them in the closing process is, is uh, something that can increase your likelihood of success. All right. How do you ask the question, like that situation, for instance, did you do a postmortem or something? Like, how could we have known that the person could have had a, uh, a competing offer? Do you ask them? What are the questions that you ask? Yeah. I mean, I think that if we were smart, we would have asked the candidate outright, If your current company gives you a counter offer that is above the compensation of this offer, how likely are you to accept it? Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, we talked about the one to 10 method with your candidate. You can also talk about it in this sense, right? Trying to make sure that you have line of sight to their decision-making process, what they're, how they're thinking about the problem. And I think that it's generally considered bad practice to accept a counter offer. And, you know, for those who are wondering why, I advise you to, to Google that term and see what comes up. I think uh, statistics bear out, I don't remember the exact source of this, but statistics bear out that the vast majority of people who accept counter offers, I think this was at Google, leave the company within 18 months. So it's not a, a lasting solution. Typically people, there are grievances that, that brought people to consider opportunities outside anyway. And, you know, a, a better offer or more compensation doesn't necessarily alleviate those. And so that is something that is always a possibility. And I think, you know, that's some recruiting 101 that we could have been a little bit cleaner on but it won't happen again. <laughs> and so you mentioned the one to 10 question, and that's something that I stole from your playbook to great success. I really like this one. Can you tell us a bit more about that strategy? Yeah, absolutely. It's sort of like one to 10, how ready are you to accept this offer? And it's not how ready are you to receive this offer? Because I think a lot of times people will receive an offer where there's very little urgency to them to accept it. And so the other way to look at it is like, why send an offer that you're not fully confident will be accepted. And so you want to ask this candidate, you know, on a scale of one to 10, one being very unlikely and 10 being, you know, certain, how likely are you to accept this offer, given that the, the details, cash compensation are all aligned to your expectation. And, you know, ideally you hear nine or 10, you know, and, and that demonstrates a high level of conviction from the candidate. If you hear something below that, you know that you have gaps to address and that gives you the opportunity to ask specifically about Hey, what could bring you to a nine or a 10? Where, where are the questions or concerns? And so uh, that I think applies to early stage founders a lot because I see founders making offers when they're ready to make the offer. Like, hey, we've interviewed everyone. We're ready to be done with the search. Let's go make an offer. That's half of it. The other half of it is, is the candidate ready to accept the offer? And so certainly that means, hey, counter offers. That means, you know, competing offers. But it also means like, have all their questions been answered? Do they have doubts about the business? Have we addressed all of their doubts? Do we know what a compelling offer for them looks like? You know, have we had that conversation? Do we see them being successful in the role and have conviction that they can be? And if all that stuff lines up, then you hopefully have alignment with your candidate. Hopefully you're able to find common ground. And what I, what I like a lot about that, that question is also the follow-up question. So how do we get you to a nine or 10? Or even if the person answered nine, How did we get you to TED? Or even, so I don't think that ever happened to me that I asked that question, but another good follow-up question could be to someone replying 10 
is there something likely to move you back to eight or nine? Sure. So, and this is where you uncover a lot of stuff. What's very important as well is asking those questions from the initial conversation up until the close. So obviously like the first front screen may be a bit early or likely are you to accept that offer? I have no idea. I don't know the company. So, but then keep that discovery mindset along the process. And also, so that has been my experience. I definitely missed higher same as you because we didn't ask the question or I didn't ask the question again and again and again, and things changed yeah. from one day to the other, from one week to the other. And maybe the person didn't have competing offer or didn't have other processes on the Monday and you talk to them on the Thursday, but in the meantime, they'll launch another process with another competing company. And if you don't ask, they won't let you necessarily know. So you have to ask, take nothing for granted and ask, 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 and really spend a lot of time in the discovery. Yeah, absolutely. It means that you have to have those touch points built into your process. You know, if you are relatively silent with a candidate and things get serious and all of a sudden you're texting them every day, that can feel a little bit disingenuous. And, you know, along those same lines, like asking somebody the one to 10 question before you've built any rapport with them can feel a little overreaching. And so if you're running a good process, getting to know the candidate, removing the risks, doing discovery, then by the end, you know, asking that kind of question, asking for truth and, and clarity on the candidate's thinking will be understandable and, and hopefully you're, you're getting better answers. And so I think you can ask the question without asking it in a direct way, right? Like, uh, what do you like so far about this opportunity? What do you think the potential derailers could be in, in a conversation for us, right? And without necessarily, and you could even say, hey, rate that one to 10. But, you know, I think uh, the point I'm trying to make is don't go in too hard too quickly, build rapport first, and then try the objective is try to to obtain as much clarity within the process as you can so that at the end you have more predictability and understanding of how the offer will be accepted. How do you build that rapport both for internal in-house recruiters and external recruiters? Candidates can be a bit suspicious, like why is it calling? Why should I share that information that they might use against me? And so a lot of recruiters struggle building that rapport with a candidate. Most of the time, what I hear, what I know, what I do myself is share information on the company. Like, this is my feedback from the interview that I got from the company. Uh, sure. And this is what's going to happen. This is the problem that you had that you need to fix for the next interview. So giving information helps you get information as well. Like, do you do this as yeah. well? And what other techniques can we use? Yeah, I think that uh, I got some good advice from Paula Judge at Excel, who, who talked about interviewing as sort of a tennis match. And like, you can't have a tennis match with yourself, right? Mm. There needs to be back and forth. And so if you're asking somebody to give you something, you need to give them something to your point. And I think sharing and disclosure is the, what the recruiter can typically provide and will build trust with the candidate. Uh, and there are limits to, you know, how much of the sort of internal conversation you can make transparent to the candidate. But I think that doing to the extent that you can, you are going to build trust with the candidate. And I think listening to them and making sure that you're actually addressing their key considerations, you know, their key questions that they hopefully shared with you at the beginning of the process and that you're keeping line aside of that throughout. And so candidates want to know that, hey, I'm not just a number for you, like you are actually thinking about what's important to me and that you're going to be effective as a, as a guide to help me, you know, navigate this process. You're going to tell me what the founders or, or interviewers are expecting uh, in order to improve my, my chances. And so if you can do that, then I think you move from the sort of agent to the the trusted advisor. And like, that's what you're, you're hopefully trying to do. But, you know, I think it's also candidates will show as much enthusiasm 
for you as they have for the role, right? And if they're not interested in the role, they're probably not going to want to spend a lot of time getting to know you, perhaps so as a, as a networking opportunity. But you want to make sure that the people that you are giving the full effort to are actually the right people in your process. And hopefully you've learned that in your discovery. Yeah. So show a lot of transparency, try and play the, the game with them, give them information so you get information. I also run a clearly, clearly organized process. It's easier. So you have touch points, prepare. I, uh, that's probably something you want to do as well, like prepare touch points. So you're going to have an interview on Thursday, 2 p.m. I'm going to call you 5 p.m., something like this. So the person expects your call and they're always in this kind of momentum. Yeah, absolutely. Which makes it really important for you to know and to be in the loop on when things are getting scheduled. You know, if I think for in-house recruiters, it's easier to understand the schedule of the, the founder. But if not, if you're working externally, you really know, need to know what that interview schedule is so that you can time your follow-ups appropriately. Mm-hmm. All right. So how do you communicate the, the really diving into the tactics? How do you communicate with a person? Is it better to use text messages, emails, LinkedIn messages, in person, like Zoom meetings? What's your- I, yeah, that, that, that's a fair question. I think that it used to be a lot more LinkedIn for me. And I think today, now you have a lot more robust tooling around being able to find people's emails. And so these days, I'd say the bulk of my outreach goes through email. And um, I think you want some kind of tooling on that email to know if the message has been opened and read, because that gives you some visibility into, hey, you know, I sent the message to 10 people, eight of them opened it, one person replied. That means you have a low conversion rate. Whereas if you send a message to 10 people, three of them opened it and one person replied, it could be a, a great acceptance rate. You're just not, people aren't opening the message. And so, you know, I think you want to be able to get people across any of those. And I've seen LinkedIn sometimes work better than email. All, most of the time, I think email works best. Text is something that I use as sort of a last resort. If, say, the first couple of messages have not been seen, not been responded to, I'll, I'll shoot someone a text. I feel like shooting them a text right out the gate is a little bit intrusive. But then again, you know, maybe some people don't feel that way. I like to use text also in the middle of process when there's something that is either, you know, short term that needs to be communicated or something that is high urgency that needs to be communicated or, you know, needing to just get in front of that candidate knowing that they'll see it. And so I I try not to put everything in there, but it is a good tool to get people to take action on something. And, you know, I think the other bit is, you know, if you're reaching out to someone via email and they have a history with your firm, and I'm seeing this a lot with Riviera and with Riviera, there are notes that go back sometimes, you know, 10 plus years on a candidate in their relationship. And if you can reach out to that candidate and leverage the background information that you already have on them or their history with the firm, that is a much more likely email to be responded to. Mm-hmm. Okay. And for the um, quick responsive activities, interview feedback, advice, private calls and stuff, do you like, do you call the person? How do you like most of the relationships, not only the initial outreach, but the relationship then I feel is very more easy to do on the phone as long as you have the approval from the person. So like if they agree to communicate like this, it's so much easier because then you get the person. With LinkedIn, I, I know that I have a hard time staying on top of my LinkedIn messages. I miss a lot of LinkedIn messages myself. So I wouldn't want to communicate uh, with a candidate yeah. over LinkedIn because that's too risky. So try and start with emails and LinkedIn and and then probably try and move to phone as soon as possible. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like first in person, then over video, then phone, then in writing. And I remember in an HR course I took hearing that 90% of uh, communication is Mm nonverbal. So that's, that's intonation, that's body language, 
all that kind of stuff, which you miss out on if you're using, you know, purely written communication. And, you know, I think is also tough to do in person all the time, but we're, we at Riviera are big fans of kicking off a project, going and meeting in person, pitching on a project, going and meeting in person, and just sort of being able to exchange energy as a human being uh, with somebody, which I think can go a lot longer way in terms of building a relationship with somebody. And so you try to do that when we can. Yeah. And because we talk about closing, closing is closing against a competitor, a competitive offer, competitive company. So anything you can do that creates more relationship with the candidates than your competitors, then you're scoring points. And at the end, well, the most points you score are likely to you are to close. So yeah, I would agree with this. And being in person, that's harder to do, but that's exactly because it's harder that it's also more effective. Yeah. In your initial guide and during our first conversation, you talked a lot about decision-making frameworks. Can you tell us about some decision-making frameworks? So basically how the candidates will think about making their decision. And I know that when we prepared that episode, you said that maybe you went too far on the decision-making frameworks. Maybe there's no need to be that elaborate. So yeah, what's your position on decision-making frameworks? Do we use them or not? How do we use them? How do we not yeah. use them? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question. And yes, in, in the initial presentation, I cited Maslow's hierarchy of needs, where at the bottom you have your, your sort of safety and your psychological needs, you know, and then above that you have things like love and belonging, you have esteem. And then at the very top, you have like self-actualization. And like, those are the areas where I think you're really going to capture someone's interest, attention, and passion as uh, in the self-actualization uh, place of the tier. I also talked about the acquired needs theory, which is like, you know, the, either the need for achievement, the need for power, the need for affiliation, and so how those wants and desires will shape a decision. And again, variability there. But, you know, the other, the other one, the final one is regret minimization, which is like, hey, if I didn't do this and I'm 80 years old on my deathbed looking back, do I regret it? And so all of those, I think, are fine ways to slice the problem of, of thinking through a decision. I do think that they are all both too general and too limited <laughs> and, and to, to capture the entire spectrum. But I think that some things are, are pretty common sense universal, like what do people want? I mentioned earlier in the conversation, like they want to be impactful. They want to be fairly compensated. They want to work with smart colleagues. They want to be growing, learning every day. They want to be challenged. Uh, they want to be respected. They want to do work that, that means something. And so I think that those things are universal for everybody. The question is, how do you weight them in the algorithm, right? Like, you know, is it all about compensation for me right now because I just bought a house? You know, will I, will I take a job that I don't want as much because it pays more versus Am I, you know, uh, don't have a lot of debt because I'm early in my career and I can take a risk, you know, on an earlier stage thing that gives me more impact, um, less likely to make a lot of money from, but more likely to allow me to grow and learn and things like that. And so that's what I would say is that all the decision-making frameworks are valid and all of them, I think, touch on, on real things. But I think the variability factor of where someone is in life is such a key ingredient to how successful any closing strategy or communication strategy is going to be. And again, you need to find that alignment, discover it early on in the process. And if you have not discovered it, don't run to offer with somebody who's fundamentally unaligned. Mm. And so and so it's back to running a good discovery process, understanding that a person will make decisions based on certain variables. Where all you have the same levers, but to different like proportion, as you said. Another thing that's very interesting as well is considering, and we tend to overlook it, but consider the family, the spouse, the kids. Uh, it's not simply the person making a decision, it's an entire ecosystem. Yeah. So sometimes you also have to give them 
elements on how to pitch that to their spouse, to their kids, if they need to relocate, to their parents, family, whatever. So that's also part of like, how do you close that person? Yeah. I mean, and I would even go as far as to say there is a period in someone's life where they're almost, you know, a hundred percent not likely to relocate, right? Let's say you have two kids in high school. That is the worst time to relocate. You know, it's, it's disrupting their social circles, et cetera, making, you know, introducing huge change. And so the vast majority of senior executives that I've spoken to who are at that point in life are locked down and they're not going to consider something that forces them to move or travel heavily. Whereas, you know, somebody who has very young children, you know, who maybe has not built roots in, in their city to that same degree could be more open to it. Maybe somebody who is an immigrant who has either family or social communities in another area may be drawn back to it. But there's a sort of off-limits period where people really just don't consider that. And then right after that, after the kids are, are out of the house and they're empty nesters, they're very open-minded. And they'll say, hey, I'll, re I'll relocate, you know, I'll telecommute, I'll do what have you. And so, uh, yeah, kind of knowing the life stage of the candidate, I think, informs a lot of the strategy around how you try to recruit them. Yeah. And to do this, you have to talk to them and really run the discovery process. And keep in mind as well that it's a competitive process. So if you do it better than your competition, you increase your closing rates. And remember that take nothing for granted and ask the same questions again and again and again without like being too intense with the person, obviously, but just trying to make them understand that you're trying to stay up to date. Has anything changed? Are we, last time you said this, is this still the case today? We agreed on this. Do you still want to do this, et cetera? All right. We did the uh, TLDR when we started. Like, uh, this is what's, uh, if you want to stop at five minutes, this is what you need to <laughs> to remember. Any parting words, any uh, closing words or our final summary from everything that we said? Like, there's one thing that you must remember if you want to increase your, your closing rate, and that's yeah. this. Yeah, well, so I don't know if this is actually that, but I do think it encompasses everything, and I do think it's a bit of a capstone, and it's this concept of momentum. And the analogy that I like to use is like a surfer dropping in on a wave. And like, the reason I say that is like, the ocean is obviously far more powerful than the surfer. The surfer can't really control the ocean. But if the surfer times their, their dive correctly, they can use the momentum of the wave to propel themselves. And so that's kind of what it is with the candidate. If you are building this rapport with them, if you are building this excitement with them, where every day they become more and more excited about the opportunity, and then every cycle you're, you're iterations are becoming more and more frequent and deeper and deeper connection points, well, then you are building momentum with the candidate. And a, a typical example would be, hey, you take them to dinner on Monday, you present a verbal offer on Tuesday morning or Monday night. On Tuesday, you're checking in to have a conversation. You know, on Wednesday morning, you're connecting them with your, your advisors, your investors, et cetera. You know, on Thursday afternoon, you're sending them a care package with flowers and, and you know, swag to their house you are essentially capitalizing on the momentum that you've built in order to gain as much the sort of emotional buy-in from the candidate as possible. And the converse example of that is like, let's say you take them out to dinner on a Monday and then you follow up with them on a Friday and then follow up with them next Friday to introduce the investor. You have lost all your urgency. You've lost all your momentum. The surfer misses the wave. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, pay close attention to that, especially in the closing innings. And again, tighten those feedback loops as, uh, as you approach offer and hopefully you'll reduce your, your failure rate. And it reminds me of a very good closing technique that I've witnessed myself with one of our clients. What they did is they, I think like the final interview is on the Thursday and they're like, okay, we're going to give you an answer, a follow-up answer next 
Friday, so a week later. But what they do is they actually send the offer on the very night of the interview. And they're like, we're so excited that we want to give you the offer now. But they did that all the time. So they're both able to make a conviction, build a conviction really fast and also act on this. And the other thing is that they actually like undersold the salary. So they, when the offer is out, they offer a better salary yeah. than what the, the person expects. So they like at an incredible closing rate because the person is like, wow, they must be so excited to have me. And I'm so excited as well. So that reflects. Yeah, no, that's great. And that's, that is playing the, the hand that you're dealt. And the under-promising and over-delivering can go a long way to, mm-hmm. to build trust. And I think pleasant surprises are always, always appreciated by folks. And if you can use that to your advantage in the closing process, uh, even better, you just get those little gains and in, in, in rapport and, uh, and engagement. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot, Jose. We'll keep on following you. Uh, we'll also listen to the first episodes. That's a good compliment of, uh, to the first episode. And uh, thanks for sharing all this. And now everybody can compete more. And so we'll need to do more to increase the category. So there might be a third one. Thanks, Jose. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Robin. Hey there, this is Robin. Most of our listeners come from word of mouth. So thanks a lot for your support. And if you enjoy the players, please keep on sharing it with your team and friends. Stay tuned for the next episode. And if you can't wait, follow me on LinkedIn for more content on recruiting. Talk to you next week.